0: When you think about reasons for prioritization, you can't think of the Caribbean as the same way as the U.S. or the U.K. or, you know, even Malaysia in in many cases. They're, They're much smaller, therefore the parties they have are much different. I think people make that flaw all the time. Welcome
1: to Between the Binary a limited series podcast highlighting the priorities, prospects, and challenges of technology in the Global South through the voices of experts in and from the Global South. This podcast is curated for the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship Program in cooperation with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. I'm Alina Noor, one of the two inaugural MacArthur Fellows and your host for this series. Episode, I'm talking to Rashid Griffith, non resident senior fellow with the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter American Dialogue. Rashid is primarily head of operations at Merkel Hedge, a Canadian financial tech firm focused on high frequency trading strategies in cryptocurrency markets. Rashid straddles both Southeast Asia and the Caribbean as a visiting research fellow at Cambodia's Future Forum, and he's also a director of the Caribbean ASEAN Council in the Philippines. Rashid is also a host of his own podcast, China in the Americas. Rashid, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So Rashid, beyond the stereotypes Um. of picture postcard sceneries on the one hand and tax havens on the other in the Caribbean, tell us what the tech landscape is like across the island chain. What are the tech-related priorities there? And what are the challenges? And do they differ much from country to country in the Caribbean?
0: I think that the tech priorities are not very unique in the Caribbean relative to any other small states in the world. Uh, perhaps the Caribbean has a lot better internet on average than most small countries. The, For example, the penetration rate for smartphones is a lot higher than most places, perhaps, so that's, that's relevant. But the tech priorities are pretty same. I, I'm very accustomed to discussing tech in know, small Southeast Asian countries. And you see them discussions across the board. You know, how do you get some better internet? How do you get good um, broadband connections? How do you get better laptops in people's homes to do school? This is obviously a much more important point in the last two years. Uh, in terms of the Caribbean differences across the island chain, i said say they're pretty similar. I don't think, however, there's any particular government uh, prioritization when it comes to technology. That's any kind of rank ordering that I could point out. I think that priorities in Barbados or Jamaica are very uh, much more, I say, how do you get better food supply? How do you get better schools? How do you pay for debt reduction? So on and so on. I think any kind, anything will fall under the very strict category of tech priorities are not very relevant to most Caribbean policy. In some ways perhaps things like digital privacy comes up a lot these days but that isn't really discussing much more than some uh, budget debates in the parliament in first Caribbean countries. I know that recently mostly from op-eds type conversations a lot of talk about 5g is quite relevant in Caribbean these days but that's not really a priority so you, it, a lot of talk about something doesn't mean it becomes a government priority in any way. And 5G certainly is not a priority. However, there was one time, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, the U.S. Embassy of the Eastern Caribbean. So the U.S. Embassy has this very weird thing where they have one embassy for seven Caribbean countries, based in Barbados, and they had a seminar on 5G (laughs) In, in the Caribbean. It's very strange because 5G is not anyone's priority. And there are essentially trying to make the case that the Caribbean should use American or Western European 5G tech and not Chinese tech. Uh, but besides that, there's not much discussion. You do see some government to government meetings where they mention 5G in passing. Uh, interestingly, you see a lot of cryptocurrency conversations by some governments in the Caribbean these days. Barbados even recently the last budget debate in Barbados the Prime Minister actually called out uh binance one of the large crypto companies they had he, she had some conversations with binance about crypto in the Caribbean and Barbados and Bahamas similarly Bermuda as well so you see some of the crypto conversations in in the Caribbean. But that's more like a revenue generation conversation and not necessarily a social technology interwoven conversation.
1: That's really interesting. Is the conversation more to do with, apart from the revenue generation portion of crypto, but is there any accompanying conversation about the infrastructure supporting crypto that has cropped up in uh, government discussions that you know of?
0: No, that, that kind of call is not very relevant to the Caribbean. Uh, at best, they want the company to have maybe a few offices in the Caribbean to do some employment, but the employment there is mostly going to be like back office, legal, compliance, accounting type services. The technology, you have to remember the Caribbean doesn't have much technology talent, not talent in the sense of people are not gifted or I mean, literally the skill set is not that present in the Caribbean relative to large places for obvious reasons. So there's not much technology jobs that would be that relevant to cryptocurrencies uh, companies you can find in the Caribbean.
1: I want to unpack a little more about what you began to bring up, this geopolitical angle to tech in the Caribbean. Um, As someone from there, from the Caribbean, who's lived in Southeast Asia and who pays close attention to both China and the United States, you understand quite well the agency of small states in the conduct of their relations with the world's two largest powers right now. And yet that agency is often overlooked or ignored, as we know, particularly in commentaries and, and in and from the West. Now, you've argued that there needs to be a shift in how we view relations between countries in the Americas especially the smaller island nations of the Caribbean and their relationship with China and that the current and dominant foreign policy discussions lack nuance, shall we say, or are sometimes riddled with bias. You've written that the US policy community simply sees what it, quote, wants instead of what is actually there. And for those interested, I would commend Rashid's piece in Lawfare, uh, the blog last year on assessing China's presence and power in the Caribbean. Rashid, is this problematic framing also true in the context of technology? You mentioned 5G, but there's also talk of the china Silk digital silk road and this desire to cooperate more, not just in 5G, but also in the digital economy, in the space of artificial intelligence and smart cities.
0: Fundamentally, yes. The way how a lot of US uh, policy thinkers and makers treat the Caribbean is very, as I put it as a that test, they see what they want to see, they don't see what is actually there. It's very important because when you come to now policy, planning and policy implications, you, your conclusions are very much wrong, very oftentimes. And I do spend a lot of time in D.C. discussing this issue with U.S. policy in particular. And it's very curious how... They think of the Caribbean as I guess a, a black box. For example, I was at this forum recently as someone asked me about the internet protocol priorities of the Caribbean. That has been the UN has to vote on different protocol systems in how to manage the IP addresses of the of the world. She so asked me what's the Caribbean's position on that. I'm like, they have none, right? There is no position in the Caribbean. Population of the population of Barbados is less than Kansas City in the in the U.S. And like the strongest economy in the Caribbean has less wealth than Nassau County in New York. So when you think about reasons for prioritization, you can't think of the Caribbean as the same way as the US or the UK or you know, even Malaysia in, in many cases. They're they're much smaller, therefore, the priorities they have are much different. I think people make that flaw all the time. I I also t- times, put it a bit more glibly, but I do mean this, where you can't really think of the Caribbean as, like, full sovereign states. I know that might be a bit controversial to some people, but I think that people often use sovereignty as a way to absolve problems, actually, and not really kind of look at the problems firsthand. You think of, oh, well, the Caribbean has a, a, you know, it's a full country. It has a position on everything in, in in the UN if you talk to the UN ambassadors from the Caribbean, you know, they always say, well, we can't go to all the meetings, even because we just don't have the staff to do it. We're going to pick some meetings for a day is already quite a lot for one person. So just the staffing, the people involved in foreign policy, people who are actually making and like, implementing foreign policy, the numbers are a lot smaller. So the Caribbean has extreme capacity constraints that are never brought up when you think about foreign policy coordination. Of course, when it comes to foreign policy and tech policy as well, they forget that just just by simple capacity constraints, the restrictions on prioritization will be very, very different. And the way how the Caribbean thinks about tech, as I mentioned a bit earlier, is not the same explicit way as the US. There is no AI policy in the Caribbean. There is no smart policy, smart city policy in Caribbean because there's just not on top of the list of issues. The like people have much pressing more priority than having better roads. Like the road systems in many Caribbean countries are quite poor. Actually, China just gave a loan to Barbados last month, I mean, two months ago, to actually fix roads in Barbados a very basic thing but it's extremely political like people always making fun of the rules in Barbados and the potholes and so on so the government does have that as a priority I think things like AI it's just it's a whole different world that people try to people try to input their own interests on the Caribbean priorities where the Caribbean like many other small countries have very different priorities
1: I'm glad you've batted that down let's talk about roads I mean there's been a lot of commentary and coverage on China's Digital Silk Road and how it's basically encompassing the world. I mean, is there a presence at all of this Digital Silk Road in the Caribbean?
0: Well, as you know, Digital Silk Road, like any other, uh, I guess, Chinese project concepts, is a branding terminology. So if you as I said, decide what constitutes the Silk Road, Digital Silk Road, well, are there going to be Chinese companies involved that do technology? Well, of course, yes. They have been there for a while. I think even before, so obviously before did, the details became a concept, before 5G became a geopolitical issue, Chinese companies have been providing uh, systems in a carry for many years. For example, most of the telecommunications infrastructure hardware in Barbados is Huawei built. Even if, if, for example, the OTNs are what we call modems in your house that connects the internet. If you flip it in Barbados or Trinidad or Jamaica, really bad. It says mainly in China, Huawei. Uh, ZTE, for example, is one of the big uh, contributors to the internet protocols in Cuba. I believe ZTE and a company called LinkTP built the undersea cable from Cuba to Jamaica to Venezuela. Uh, there are a lot of those things going on for quite some time. and People just don't know. Even the, the cheap smartphones in the Caribbean are, I think, primarily ZTE, but they're not branded as ZTE. If you know, take it apart, you'll see some notes saying ZTE, you know, so on. So there's been case in Caribbean, you know, even across Africa, like, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest smartphone company by market share in Africa, it's called Transian, which is a Chinese company. So it's been there for quite some time. People tend to not realize that these things were going on before the branding efforts. But the Digital Silk is only a branding effort based on a lot of other prior activities in, in, across the world. So definitely, there is the Digital Silk presence in the Caribbean. I think also you will find, if you go to Latin America even, you will see um, similar type patterns, Latin America is a bit more advanced given that there are even, for example, the e-commerce, e-commerce companies like Taobao, RJD.com, they have bases and operations in Latin America as well. Even Didi is, for example, like a Uber type company by Chinese. I use Didi every day in Panama I live in Panama now. It's in Mexico, it's in Colombia, and so on. So the Chinese presence in the corporate activity that have digital connection is quite, uh, is quite here in the region. In the Caribbean in particular, uh, I think besides the telecommunication systems and different smartphones, it's not that much yet. But I do know that a couple of years ago, I think maybe 2020, the Prime Minister Antigua, Barbuda, he made a comment, Publicly, it was very surprising. He said that they, uh, he, his government, cancelled a deal talk with Huawei to do some five G tech in Antigua, even though it was the best deal on the market, because he didn't want to upset the U.S. So you have those things happening, and he sees he very clear on what he did it. To. It was not because it was a good bad deal it was because of geopolitical pressures. So you're seeing that kind of thing happen more and more. I do think though that that will not be a big detriment. I think a lot of Caribbean countries will often ignore U.S. complaints and anxieties and go forward with what is just the best deals.
1: Yeah, and I think that's true across uh, many other countries in the global South as well, in Southeast Asia uh, even. Um, does the United States have any reason to be concerned or you mentioned anxious about China's presence and seeming popularity in the Caribbean, even if it's just the receptivity to China there. From what you're saying, what I'm understanding is that it's mainly out of pragmatism. But are the U.S.'s concerns justified?
0: Well, it depends what you mean by U.S. concerns, because the U.S. policy makers and the U.S. think tanks say a lot of things. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to.
1: There are concerns about Chinese influence through whether branding exercises like the Digital Silk Road or more concrete infrastructure projects uh, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative.
0: Yeah, the, the influence thing is very strange. I, I always wonder why people don't realize how insulting that question is usually. where are okay, so you have, as I say, I'm from Barbados, I use the Barbados example because, you know, I can, let, 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 let's push back. But Barbados's prime minister, uh, Mia Amor Motley, female prime minister, has been in government for over 25 years, I believe. She, at one point, was the deputy prime mm-hmm. minister of the country before missed education many years ago. She is a Queen's Council lawyer. Uh, her firm, one of the most powerful law firms in the entire region. Her f- family is very powerful in Caribbean. the Caribbean. The idea that a Chinese person or a government can influence her to make any choices is crazy. Yeah, so that, and that that's you know similar type pattern across the region. The prime minister of Saint Vincent was in power for twenty some twenty years. But I think by now very controlling, very powerful, very brilliant man too. The idea that someone's going to come in from China, influence him as a preposterous. I, I can go down the line. So I don't think that argument does make much sense as it plays out. You could say there is a risk maybe in some char- some Chinese companies outbidding U.S. companies for contracts. Again, that's not a problem for the Caribbean. That's a problem for U.S. companies that can't compete. Um, there is a there is also a complaint. I often hear sometimes about the idea of democratic backsliding, so, you know, one of those new buzzword terms. Again, I'm not too sure what that means because the Caribbean has never been the bastion of democracy, you know, in a textbook sense of the term, where again in Barbados right now, the prime minister, she controls all the seats in parliament. If this was Southeast Asia, you would call that dictatorship. But it was voted for far, completely, fair election, no no complaints there. But, you know, she she, she also makes adjustments to the constitution every, every few months and so on again. If it was like Nigeria, you wouldn't call it democracy. But in the Caribbean it is, and the US calls it that way, by the same time you're gonna complain about democratic backsliding influence in China. is too inconsistent to be a real real argument.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you batted that down. I mean, this idea that states don't have options to exercise and um, don't have their own authority or agency to choose is insulting, as you said. Um, Rashi, do you see any prospects for South-South cooperation on technology? That may not necessarily include or involve China, but um, that might fit in with the pragmatic approach of many global south countries. is there Is there room for what used to be this ideal and vision of a south-south world and south-south cooperation?
0: I'm very pessimistic on that notion, not because in theory it can't happen or it, uh, it's, a, it's a bad idea. Just that I don't think, especially small countries, have enough capacity in the public sector to do this kind of wide-scale multilateral dealings. Uh, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Barbados, I, I don't know, but maybe it has less than 30 people. You know, it, it's very small. I mean, they have very specific attentions and protocol people and so on. It's not that big of a uh, uh, a network. Even the embassies. I think barbias embassy in Beijing. They only have I think three people. The Barbias embassy in Panama. I think same amount of people, maybe four. Like, what can you do? Right there. There's the Barbos has the embassy in Brazil, but you know, a similar number count. They, they don't have any money to do any, any kind of activities. The countries can't compete that much because they don't have a much diversified economy. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I I don't think I think tourism really is enough for the small countries. That's a different conversation. So I'm not sure exactly the day-to-day operation of foreign policy or the day-to-day operations of doing business can kind of spearhead this kind of South-South cooperation. Even language, for example, the Caribbean is in a very particularly favorable location to capitalize on Latin American business activity. We have very stable legal systems that we we all use English. We promise that we don't speak Spanish. Uh, The Caribbean does not speak any other non-English languages. And if you can't even do business with Latin American countries right there, Mexico, for example, either Brazil, Portuguese, how are you going to do business with, I don't know, what counts as South South, you know, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, what what does that even mean? So these, these structural constraints on the public sector, these are constraints on the structure of the, either doing business in the small Caribbean countries are severe. And one of the things that could alleviate that which actually was a plan back in 1958, is to have a single Caribbean diplomatic corps. So you wouldn't have like a Barbados foreign embassy. You wouldn't have a Jamaican foreign embassy. You would have a Caribbean. At the time in 1958, it was a British West Indies foreign policy. So between 1958 and 1962, the British Caribbean not all, but most formed what we call a, the British West Indies Federation, which was still under the Queen. So it was a general. So it had one Caribbean prime minister, one Caribbean governor general, and so on. That lasted four years, but the impetus that pushed that together is still accurate in my view. There's just not enough capacity in these small countries to go forward, with kind of international and globalization business strategies. I mean, right now, I'm talking to you from Panama. I left also. So I'm part of the problem. I, I understand that. And people do leave and they go to the U.S., they go to London, they go to Latin America, they learn, they learn Spanish and, you know, they go to Asia and they work from there. They don't work in the Caribbean because those kind of issues, I think, will prevent any real self self integration in any sophisticated way.
1: This consolidated approach to foreign policy is somewhat akin to the Scandinavian countries, I think. Um, I remember that in Southeast Asia, at least a few years ago, some of the uh, Scandinavian countries banded together and had a shared mission as opposed to having a separate mission to save on resources.
0: Yeah, that's right. The Nordic Nordic Council type operations is a a good idea of that, uh, around that same impetus. There's there's not enough people individually to do something, so you have to aggregate upwards. The Caribbean, however, is too insular. Uh, I guess if, if you live outside the Caribbean, you wouldn't know this, but the Caribbean countries are too insular in their attributes. It's very difficult to even think about going back to like a federation style foreign policy. even if You can't even have a federation style central bank in the Caribbean. So capital allocation is very sparse. You could have pulled that, but you can't because of this whole insularity issue, so.
1: Yeah, and this capacity issue is also very real and underappreciated. Um, there are a lot of initiatives and there's a lot of keenness to have these cyber capacity building initiatives pushed outwards from primarily among the more developed economies. And I wonder what you would say to them who would like to bring these cyber capacity building initiatives to the Caribbean countries. Would you say, hold off until we're ready or let's take it slowly?
0: Again, you see, cyber capacity is a loaded term and I'm not sure exactly what people mean by that. So if, for example, is it security? Well, you know, it's never too early for that. Is it just having better networks? Caribbean has a decent internet. There are some parts that don't have good internet. Uh, You know, ironically enough, the, the 5G conversation is somewhat, I think, misattributed to tech development, where I think it should be seen as like a uh, solutions for like a lot of climate change problems. So, for example, in any Caribbean, uh, hurricanes are a real problem. And every year, there's some hurricane somewhere in the Caribbean, and they're not always very damaging, but oftentimes they are quite damaging. Now, when the hurricane comes and destroys the telecommunications towers and destroys the poles for the internet, you know, destroys other electricity polls and so on. the thing with 5G is that with 5G systems, you can have less technical debt. They less infrastructure in the sky to be knocked down by a hurricane. So what happens is when you have this kind of 5G technology, you can have a more, a more anti-fragile system when it comes to the hurricanes, any kind of natural disaster, but hurricanes is the biggest one in the Caribbean. That is a worthwhile relevant point to push for 5G. Let me call it speed and the you know bandwidth expansion. They're, they're not draws for any Caribbean time soon, but the the, t- the less technical debt available to be knocked down by hurricanes is a good reason. I don't really see this point being made much, but you know, it is relevant.
1: That's a really interesting point and a good way to localize um, the discussion to context, I guess. Um, Rashid, in some of the podcast episodes that we've released, there have been some really Interesting use cases or examples of very local innovations, uh, particularly to do with language, you know, um, the, the use of audio functionality, for example, to communicate better in Khmer and Cambodia. And similarly in Tunisia because Arabic is not the standard Arabic that's spoken there. Are there any interesting innovations in the Caribbean that we should be aware of or on the lookout for?
0: So a good question. I, I don't think so. You know, the, the language thing is, you as, as you know, the Caribbean, the English Caribbean probably speaks more English than England. So you won't find anything about language <laughs> on, on that side for sure. But in terms of any local or regional innovations of recent, no. I can't think of anything noteworthy. I do know that people often point out the central bank digital currency programs that happen in caribbean so so a much higher proportion number than other parts of the world but i'm not a fan of those i, I do think those are actually more damaged and good so am not sure we would call that innovation per se mm. uh, I, yeah I, I can't i can't think of anything particular
1: well you mentioned um crypto is pretty big in the caribbean i was just wondering if there were any Oh, I
0: I, I I would say I would be more cautious on that statement. So, crypto is not big in the Caribbean. The there are some Caribbean countries that have specific crypto legislations for international firms to use, but okay. within like Caribbean people themselves, it's not a big uh, a big topic.
1: Right. And do you think there could be innovations on that front, kind of the regulations related to crypto for use by um, external parties?
0: Uh, that's actually a good question. The Caribbean has, I would say, one of the most innovative things in the Caribbean that has impacted the world in the last 40 years is probably on the regulatory side, where you know, offshore finance, a lot of offshore finance in the world has come from Caribbean innovation. So that from the first international business company, or the, the idea of offshore companies starting in the Caribbean. And the I believe. And a lot of things on the international trust law or offshore trust law, a lot of that did come from the Caribbean. Even, you know, the, the very popular thing, I think some of your listeners may know this already, that about 60 some percent of all the Chinese companies listed on U.S. capital markets are based in Caribbean because of the legal systems there allow what we call a VIE structure to get them onto the U.S. markets. So Caribbean does act as a conduit or API for U.S. capital for the Caribbean and vice versa. Sorry, to China and vice versa. So you do have that kind of regulatory innovation. However, I I would say into the crypto, this is my professional area, I do not think that the legislation in Caribbean as it pertains to crypto, are that innovative, which is shocking because there could be a lot more. But I think um, some European countries are a bit better, even even Brazil is quite good these days, about crypto legislation. Even Dubai is still quite a hard lead in crypto rules these days. Uh, I think maybe you might see some Caribbean innovation in the regulatory stance is on crypto, but as of yet, the stuff that has come forward, I think it's not that innovative, but I am hopeful.
1: That's fascinating because on the one hand, you talk about like some really basic fundamentals that people in the Caribbean really want, like basic roads that work, for example. But on the other hand, you have the other spectrum, I guess, these heights of crypto, like really sophisticated financial tools and regulations that govern it in the Caribbean itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, there is that bifurcation. I, I think because you know, these I guess call them high-level sophisticated financial rules also don't impact the everyday voting person. So the things that they are it's actually it's actually a good point because the things that they're interested in also affect the political cycle. But because these other more sophisticated things are not really the general conversation. These are fairly stable over time. So governments don't come in and come in and say, let's, let's change offshore. Let's change some rule. These are much more stable over time. because They're not part of the political process as much. So uh, that's one point.
1: Right. Um, Rashid, final takeaway from you before we say thank you for your time. What? Should listeners know about the tech landscape or future of the Caribbean? Uh,
0: I would say that you have to come to the question with an understanding of the realities of the Caribbean as it is and not as you like it to be. So if you come to the conversation asking about IP protocol rules and global bilateral systems, no. Or come to about you know AI development in the Caribbean, no. Let's come down a bit further and realize that the priorities on the ground might just be better health tech her digitization of corporate records you know simple things like that well i call it simple but of course it's not that simple those kind of priorities you need to have a good foundation there before you can talk these advanced systems so i would say just be more careful when it comes to discussing what countries should want and not try to base on what you want those countries to need
1: That's a great penetrating reminder for all listening and even for those who aren't listening. (laughs) Rashid, uh, thank you so much for your time and your bluntness and your insights. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope we'll read more of your work and see you around.
0: Thank you. It was a great conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and found the conversation useful. This podcast series is made possible by the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship in cooperation with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, Canada's leading think tank on Canada-Asia relations. To learn more about the fellowship or the foundation, be sure to visit asiapacific.ca.